Welcome to Pullback. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Heyo! Each episode, we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption, and then we tell you what we learned, fuck-ups and all. This episode, we are talking about maybe one of my favorite things in the whole world. So I'm going into this so, so trepidatious. <laughs> I, I am not ready. Uh, we're talking about tea. Oh, no. Kristen, you suggested this. Do you hate me? No, you suggested this. Don't row me into this. <laughs> Wait, did I? <laughs> you sure did. <laughs> it was, the, doing the research for this was so overwhelming because I was like, fuck, I don't, I don't know anything about tea. I don't know what plant it is. I don't know how you make it. I don't know what the difference between different tea varieties are. I have learned all of those things. So progress. Oh, good. Because I don't know. So that's, I'm glad that I can go into this not feeling like, like, I'm going to ask questions and be like, this is like, listeners are going to be like, damn, Kyla, (laughs) read a book about tea much. (laughs) Uh, No, just know that all of the questions you ask are things I didn't know until like three days ago. So Well, weren't you saying that one of your friends was telling you that, like, non-caffeinated teas aren't actually teas? And I was like, what? Yeah, like herbal blends, not actually tea because they're not from the tea plant. Wait, tea? Okay, so... Yeah, well, we're going to talk about it. Let's blow past it for now. There's a tea plant. You're going to love it. (laughs) I mean, I know I love it. I I probably don't love the labor rights that go into... No, you're not going to love that. (laughs) Okay, well, get us going, Kristen. Tell me about tea. Okay. Um, actually, do we want to talk about our challenges first? I think that might be nice. Sure. I'm sipping on a tea right now that I know isn't ethical because I looked it up. <laughs> <laughs> but I had already owned it. So, you know, the end of that story. <laughs> do you want to talk about your challenge first? Sure. Um, so first, I'm going to say that I am team coffee. So... Whoa, those are fighting words. I know. Um, I drink a lot of coffee. I drink tea mostly like, I don't know, when I'm like sick or if I want to chill out, but it's not like a thing I drink every day. So I started by looking into the two uh, loose leaf teas that I had in my cupboard, the only tea I own. Um, and they're both uh, loose leaf teas from the waste-free grocery store that I go to. So I actually had no idea what the brand was or anything like that. It was just, you know, I scooped a couple of things into a jar. Not very considered <laughs> consumption. But, <laughs> but I actually, when I looked into it, I found out that it was like, as far as tea goes, it was okay. So the tea that this grocery store sells is Fairtrade Organic Tea. And it's from a company called Shanty Tea. It's, it's a Canadian company that was basically... It's so one of those that sort of founded on um, social values as well as like the like profit making endeavors. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about fair trade and how it's not necessarily great in a tea context. So I'm still not confident that the labor conditions are great uh, where this tea was made, but it's probably like as close as you can get as the average consumer. So um, because I didn't, the challenge wasn't like buying anything, so it was just a thing in my cupboard, I decided to make chai. That was my challenge. <laughs> like from scratch with just like spices and stuff? Yeah. It was not great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
No, chai is really difficult actually to get right. So that's why I was like, wait, <laughs> you just made it? <laughs> yeah, I made it. Um, I made it using a recipe that specifically billed itself as easy chai because I knew I wasn't going to make good chai. I knew that was a foregone conclusion. Well, not with that attitude, Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like, I didn't have cardamom pods, so I just used ground cardamom, which is like not going to turn out very good. And like, same thing with cloves. So it was, it was not very good chai. It was drinkable, but I think from now on, I'm, I'm going to just leave the chai to the experts. <laughs> How about you? What was your challenge? I forgot that we were recording today. <laughs> so uh, I did my challenge yesterday. So it is very similar to yours in that I looked into the teas that were in my cupboard, but um, I have more tea than you. I have seven different teas. I have green, uh, black. I have like three different Earl Greys. I have <laughs> uh, I have a chai tea uh, that's just um, like from David's tea. So I didn't look into David's tea too much because they are not doing so well right now and I figured they don't need more bad, bad press. Plus, I'd spoken to them before and they I think I feel like David's tea tries their best at sourcing as ethically as possible. It's a Canadian company, but I can't really shop there so much anymore because they just closed down like all of their retail locations. Thank you, COVID. I think a month or two ago, I went to Murchie's Fine Tea, which is a BC local tea brand that's been around, I found out yesterday, for 125 years. Wow. Holy smokes. Uh, there's like 10 locations in BC. So they're pretty, you know, they're around. Uh, but they're invisible on the internet, which is crazy for being as old as they are. Like you can only see their website. There's no history. There's no news articles. There's no stories. Nothing. Even their website doesn't have an about page. So you can't see their like <laughs> tea story or anything. So I, I don't know. I guess that means they're completely scandal free, but it also makes them kind of boring. <laughs> they're off the grid. I like it. Yeah. And for as old as they are, it's almost a little bit, it's impressive, honestly. But they didn't have any advertising for fair trade or organic or – I mean, actually, they had – out of 113 teas, only three were organic. So so I emailed them uh, yesterday and I was just like, hey, I really like your tea, which genuinely I do. They make a really good tea, which you would think after 125 years, they'd nail it. But I <laughs> sent them a message that was just like, hey, I really care about labor rights lately and your tea doesn't have any advertising whatsoever for being – ethically sourced, so I have to assume it's not. So, you know, when you get that sorted, let me know and I'll start buying from you again. They haven't gotten back to me because I just sent that yesterday. Uh, and then the other thing that I did was I also made chai, but not in the same way that you did because I, I know how hard it is to do from scratch. Uh, I bought a, a pre-made chai uh, from a company called The Chai Company, which is also local. They're from Delta, B.C., and uh, their website has a lot more information. So they say that they source their ingredients directly from farmers and farm-based co-ops. Uh, so they try to make sure that they receive equitable pricing for their crops. They use all organic ingredients. So it's a little bit more, you know, earth-friendly, good for the, for the people who have to harvest that stuff. And it's delicious. Honestly, it might be the best <laughs> chai I've had since I was in India. Nice. 
I forgot to tell you about the worst part of my challenge. Uh, <laughs> so um, they like in the recipe, you had to add like some kind of milk. And the only milk I currently have is pistachio milk, which I love for smoothies, but which is not super great for hot beverages because it does the same thing that, like almond milk does where it curdles. <laughs> I put it in. And at first it looked okay because I had it on like a low simmer. I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be fine. It's not like boiling. So that's okay. Um, and I left it for five minutes and I looked back and like everything had congealed. <laughs> Oh no, that's so gross. It was really gross. Um I strained the I strained it and then added a little bit more cold pistachio milk and it tasted fine. But yeah, it was a little bit of a disaster. I'm too poor for pistachio milk. Yeah, pistachios are kind of uh, expensive. I make them from scratch though, so like um it's not like I'm buying $8 uh I don't even know if they sell pistachio milk, but if anybody wants a good pro tip, it's amazing in strawberry banana smoothies. I can't tell you. Like, it's magical. But don't <laughs> don't put it in chai. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kristen, ruin tea for me. I'm ready for it. Okay. So I had kind of thought going into this that, like, people were in camps, you know? You're either a coffee drinker or a tea drinker, and that people drank about the same amount as coffee or tea. To be honest, I kind of thought people drank more coffee than tea. And I was shocked to learn that this is wrong. So if you exclude water, which is the most consumed drink, because we need it to live. Uh, <laughs> but other than water, tea is the most consumed drink in the world. And if you listen to like any podcast or read any story about tea, it always starts with that fact. So here we are just being derivative. But I thought it was an interesting <laughs> thing to start with. I didn't know that. So that's fair. Uh, but I'm not surprised. <laughs> tea is amazing. And I'm tea. I'm team tea. I don't like coffee, which is also a hot take. Not a big fan. I use it as a face scrub. Thank you, Lush. But that's about it. Yeah. So I, you're in, in the, the group of the majority. <laughs> yeah, suck it, coffee drinkers. <laughs> so for those of you who do not know, which based on how many people drink tea, by probably nobody, but tea is a beverage that's produced by steeping young leaves and leaf buds of the tea plant, Camellia sinensis. Nope, I think I said that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, yeah, it's Camellia sinensis. I think that's how you say it. But you steep that in hot water. That is how you make tea. It's kind of funny when articles try to describe tea because you kind of just like tea is just tea, you know. But I came across one description that said it has a slightly cooling and astringent flavor, which is not terribly appetizing. But hey, I'm on team coffee. So who knows? <laughs> uh, every, every year, 5.8 million metric tons of tea are produced. So lots and lots and lots of tea. Tea is a crop that is a perennial actually, and it is a long lasting crop. So you can have a tea plant that lives for hundreds and it, actually in some cases, thousands of years. In the Yunnan province of Southwestern China, there are plants that are over 1500 years old. That's wild. Did you see, did you see them when you were in China? No, no, I wish, uh, or maybe, and I just didn't know because I'm a peasant, but no, I, I just saw advertising when I was looking up the tea. I think Murchies maybe was the one that was like, oh, our tea comes from the ancient Yunnan teas. And I was like, oh, cool. 
And now I know that it's 1,500 years old. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, super old tree, uh, tea plants. But you don't need the tea to be super old to be productive. Tea basically needs to grow for two years, and then you can start harvesting it. And actually, once tea plants are ready to be harvested, you have to harvest them on like regular cycles of somewhere between seven and 10 days. So that's how long it takes to create something that's called the flush, which is basically like, um, it'll be a grouping of two leaves and a bud. And that's what gets picked when you're picking tea. So you have to do that at regular intervals if you're running a, a tea plantation or a small tea farm. Uh, and it can be productive for, you know, 60 years or more, the same tea plant. Tea plants actually can grow very tall, but in practice, they are pruned so that they're more like shrubs. So if you had a wild tea plant, it could be like 20 or 30 meters tall, but in practice, they're never that tall on tea plantations. Uh, they're maintained to be sort of short, and that makes it easier to pick and, you know, various things like that. I think it also makes it, um, like, has some benefit for the flavoring as well. So could I go buy, like, a tea plant and just grow tea in my house? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I did not look up whether tea lives in apartment settings. <laughs> oh, I'll just go ask the Home Depot florist. <laughs> <laughs> They need fairly warm temperatures, so my initial instinct is that, like, they'd probably be fine in apartments, but, like, they might need a lot more sunlight. I don't know. <laughs> so there are two main varieties of tea plant. Um, there is a small-leaved china plant, which is the um, Camellia sinensis sinensis, probably pronouncing that wrong. And the large-leaved Assam plant, which is uh, Camellia sinensis Asimica. So if you ever see, like, um, Asimica tea, it's from that kind of tea plant. But actually, when you're looking at the varieties of tea, it's usually not about, like, what the variety of the plant is. It's usually more about the process of how the, the tea is made. So what's your favorite kind of tea, Kyla? Did you say um, Earl Grey you like a lot? Yes, I am a sucker for Earl Grey. <laughs> I think Earl Grey, I didn't specifically look it up, but I think it's a blend. Gosh, I don't want to sound really stupid here, but it's a black tea, right? <laughs> a blend of black tea, right? <laughs> I think. <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> tea expert over here. <laughs> yeah. Woo. Uh, three days of Googling. So um, my favorite tea is like a jasmine tea. That would be like a green tea, different kinds of teas. You can also get white teas, oolong teas. There, there are a few other varieties, but those are sort of the main ones. And each of them has their own processing method, but the core difference is basically the extent to which the leaves, the leaves are fermented. Oh, so they all come from the same tree? Yeah, they're the same plant, but they're just processed differently. So some of them are fermented for longer than others. That's bonkers. I mean, I had never, ever thought about teas, so I, I didn't eat, I, I can't say, oh, I thought they all came from different plants, because I literally never, ever thought about it. But just, they're all so different, so knowing they all come from the same tree is kind of cool. Yeah, they're the same plant. I mean, there are the two, like, varieties of tea plant, and um, those do have some impact on the flavor, but that's not what the different types of tea mean. doesn't mean that it's a different plant. It means that, like, they're either fermented for longer or not. Oh, that's so cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, and yeah, as we've talked about, technically herbal blends and fruit infusions are not teas, but rather tisans. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I'm a person that enjoys an herbal blend, so I am fine with saying that that is a tea. Technically, it's not, but I don't care. Uh, <laughs> having said that, um, most of this episode looks at you know, environmental and human rights on tea plantations. So we're not really talking about herbal blends because those have different ingredients and the supply chain is different. Maybe in the future, we will do an herbal blend episode. <laughs> I feel like that would be so much work because herbal blends, it's like, oh, this one's got blueberries as the base and this one's got lemon. So you're really just looking at those industries individually, I would think. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't know how it works. Didn't Google it. <laughs> uh, so where is tea grown? Um, if you were to associate a country with tea, what country would you associate? Okay. India, China, um, South Africa. Yeah, so India and China are the two big ones, right? Um, it is believed that tea originated in China. And uh, now today, China and India are the two biggest producers. But as you point out, there are like lots of other countries that also produce tea. So including there are many African countries that are big tea producers now. Oh, yeah, that's right. Even Japan produces some teas and they're tiny. Mm -hmm. Actually, um, matcha was invented in Japan. Oh, yeah, duh. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm not going to talk too much about matcha, but there's a pretty good Stuff You Should Know episode uh, that covered how that is made. So if you're interested, go to go to that source because I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> well, we'll link to it, too, because it sounds kind of interesting. <laughs> Absolutely. Tea has grown in more than 45 countries, but the biggest producers are China and India. The biggest exporters are Sri Lanka and Kenya. I, you know, it's weird. I was not actually able to find much on Chinese tea production that was not historical. It was super weird, given that it's like the biggest producer. Most of the reports that you read and things like that are about Indian tea production or about like Sri Lankan or African or Vietnamese. Um, so I apologize if I'm missing something major about Chinese tea production. I don't know why it was so hard to find. Who knows? But at any rate, uh, where tea is produced, uh, it can be a huge industry. So um, in India, which is the second largest producer of tea, uh, there are over 1,600 tea manufacturers and 3.5 million people work in the tea industry, which makes it the second largest, um, or sorry, it makes it the largest private sector employer. So in India, it's the largest private sector employer. Yeah, is tea. Whoa, I would have thought it would be garments, honestly. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm sure garments are up there, but tea, it employs a lot of people. Uh, the two biggest tea industry or tea regions in India are Assam and Darjeeling, which kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's the one everyone's heard of. Yep. And 70% uh, of India's tea is produced in those two regions. Tea has been in use since about 2700 BC, so it is, we've had it for most of human history. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was first believed to have been used in China for medicinal purposes, and it was also sort of a status good and even used as a currency. 
Um, it was often used to pay tribute to Chinese emperors. So it was very much um, sort of like a highbrow good for a long time. And it wasn't until more recently that it became sort of like a common drink. And in particular, if you're talking about tea production today, it is impossible to get away from colonialism because the industry is just fundamentally shaped by British colonialism. And I didn't realize the extent to which that was true. Like, you know, I sort of, before I started doing the research, I was like, okay, I know British are known for loving their tea. And I know that there was some fucked up shit to do with tea in like colonial China. But I didn't realize that like today, the like tea plantation workers on Indian plantations are oftentimes working in barracks that were built in the 20s by British colonialists. And oftentimes those barracks haven't been upgraded at all. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. Fundamentally, the industry and the living conditions on tea plantations are, to this day, still reflect um, British colonialism to a high degree. Tea plantations were actually established by the British East India Company during um, colonial rule. And I just think that, yeah, that emphasizes those deep links, you know. So how does the tea production process work? I think that's an important thing to cover because, you know, maybe maybe listeners all know this, but I didn't. Uh, so <laughs> I have to imagine at least some haven't either. So the first thing to produce tea is you need to grow and harvest the tea. Sure. Fairly straightforward. <laughs> there are botanists out there that have written in a lot of detail how this works I'm not going to go into it because... It's boring, probably. Yeah, I found it really boring. (laughs) (laughs) But if you are interested, we've got links to it in the research notes. Tea is then sort of picked and it's gathered in like tarpaulin bags or baskets. And pickers are picking what I had mentioned before is called the flush. So that's two leaves and um, a bud. And basically every seven to ten days, a new flush is produced and it gets picked. Like forever? Yeah, or until the plant dies, but yeah, basically forever. Wow. That's a lot of tea from one plant. Yeah. They, I think, so the tea used to grow for longer, but you want to pick the flush right away for like taste reasons, um, because if the leaves sort of get older, they aren't as like bright green and something, something taste. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, so... The tea pickers, uh, they often have weight-based quotas, so their pay can be dependent on whether they're picking as much tea as they're supposed to in a given day, which, um, I mean, we talked about the palm oil episode. That's kind of how it works in that context, too. So it's not super unusual for these kinds of agricultural jobs, but that can be a source of unfree labor and exploitation for sure. So after the tea has been picked, it is then processed in a series of complicated steps and all of these steps change a little bit depending on which kind of tea you're producing all right so you've got this like big bag of leaves that you've picked from the tea plant the first thing you need to do to it is to wither it you want to extract some of the moisture from those tea leaves and there can be different methods for doing that one method involves um just sort of like laying them out in the sun and moving them around a bit until they've they've dried out. 
And then oftentimes you'll also bring them inside. So they're like laying in these bamboo baskets um, and uh, drying out and getting moved for a few days. But the idea is basically to have those leaves wither or sort of dry out a little bit, not all the way, but a little bit. After that, there's a process called either called uh, rolling or disruption. And basically the idea is to release some of the juices from the leaves so that um, it can start to bring out the flavor. Um, it sort of batters the leaves around a bit. And after that, uh, the fermentation process starts. So as I mentioned, this is the main difference between the sort of kinds of tea that we have. Fermentation is basically where tea is allowed to oxidate um, before it gets dried. Basically, they're just kind of left to ferment. If you have a black tea, that means that it is fully fermented. White teas and some green teas are either non-fermented or only lightly fermented. Um, and then there are semi-fermented teas, like oolong is usually semi-fermented, and it's kind of like the color ends up being in the middle. Fermentation time can differ depending on the temperature that the leaves are kept at. And then when you're done fermenting it and you're, you're satisfied with how fermented the leaves are, don't know how the tea makers test that, uh, but essentially, for the fermentation process gets stopped uh, by either roasting or steaming the leaves. So then they're placed in like a, a dryer for a process that's called fixation, which is essentially like they need to fix it in place, stop the fermentation from happening. Then they get made sort of into the form of tea that you, you generally see. So they get um, basically formed into small pellets through like one method that I saw was it was basically sort of put into this, a bunch of tea was put into a cotton bag and then the cotton bag was like moved around on various machines um, to like sort of um, break up the leaves and I suppose do that without making a mess. I'm not really sure why it has to be in a cotton bag, but that's how they do it. Um, and forming the pellets, it, it also intensifies the, the flavor of the tea. So when you're sort of steeping it, um, at home, you're going to get more flavor from it. Then the tea is dried in an oven where it undergoes different drying cycles. Um, and the aim of that is to basically reduce the moisture content um, so it's under 5%. Um, firing the tea through like putting them in the oven also brings out the fragrance of the tea. So when you go into a tea shop and you smell the tea and it smells really good, that's partially because of that sort of oven process. And then after that, it is sort of sorted into different sizes, and um, that's a process called grading. So the tea gets sort of like sorted or graded, and then it goes out to market, basically. Uh, so about 14% of the value added or the total value of a, the tea product happens in all of those stages I just mentioned. The other 86% happens in the last two stages, which are blending and distributing. So... Once you have like different kinds of tea ready to go, the people that are making tea brands or marketing tea, they put different blends together so that you get like the distinctive taste properties. Um, and that and then the retailing of the tea is where most of the value of tea production is going. So most of the profit of tea production is happening outside of the countries where tea is being grown, which when we talk about labor is sort of a huge part of the story that there's this 
product that we're willing to pay for, but most of the value is actually not um, going to the workers that are cultivating and picking and even processing the tea plant. It's going to people sort of at the end of the, the supply chain. Yeah, but I mean, that's not surprising mm-hmm. at all. <laughs> it's kind of what I thought going into this episode was just like, ah, oh, these guys aren't making any money and the people selling it are making lots. No, but I think it does sort of go back to like, what are the linkages of colonialism in this industry, right? Because um, so if you talk about it, it's basically like, it's a, a raw material that we place a huge amount of like value on in terms of like people are very willing to consume it, to pay for it. But most of the money that's being made off of that is being extracted from the country and not being produced there. It's being produced in wealthy Western countries where the tea ultimately gets sold, right? I don't know. It just, I, the tea industry really strongly shows that sort of like the underdevelopment thesis, right? Like why it is that um, we create sort of like the global trade regimes produce poor countries, right? Um, it's because we're placing all the value in these wealthy countries. The The value is getting sort of extracted from the countries where they're being produced. I don't know if that was a whole rant, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, I no, I, it makes sense. If people want to know more about how fucked the East India Company was, our favorite episode, our favorite podcast to plug is Behind <laughs> the Bastards. And they did a great episode on the East India Company that is very upsetting. So... If you want to be more mad, you can go listen to that. <laughs> Absolutely. I guess we should talk about the tea industry a little bit. Um, can you think of any tea brands off the top of your head? Uh, other than Murchies. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can picture like the boxes on the grocery shelves. What's that one? Starts with a T. Tetley? Tetley? Yeah. Yeah, Tetley. So Tetley's a big one. Um, the other one you might have heard of um, is Lipton. It's another yep. big brand. Yeah. There was another one that I hadn't heard of, but people probably have called PG Tips. That may be a big British brand. I don't know. Mm, maybe. I might know the package if I saw it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I had never heard of that one. But essentially, tea is a really concentrated industry, and there are basically four companies that dominate. So one is Unilever, and Unilever produces Lipton and PG Tips. Then there is a group called Tata Tea that produces Tetley. And the other two are sort of companies that are at different parts of the supply chain. So one is called Van Rees, and it's a tea trading company. And then James Finley, which is a tea packing company. So there's actually like a lot of You know, there's a high level of concentration. Those four companies control a lot of the industry. And unfortunately, there's a huge lack of transparency in the tea supply chain, which makes it really difficult to trace the origin of the blended tea that you're getting sold in Western markets. Um, It's really hard to find out where your tea is actually being produced. And uh, as a consequence of that, it's really hard to tell like it's it's very hard to assure yourselves that there's been any kind of labor standards or anything being held up there. One of the major tea producers is McLeod Russell. It's a company that has a bunch of tea plantations that it owns across Africa and Asia. Um, and in particular, they've got a lot in India. They have been linked to some human rights abuses in different investigations. Um these are kind of the, the stories about those barracks that haven't been upgraded and things like that. 
But again, it's really hard to tell which tea, you know, because McLeod Russell sells to all of the top brands. So, you know, can be really tricky. I want to talk about tea in the environment a little bit. It's not going to be a huge focus of this episode because honestly, there's more story with the human rights aspect. But, you know, we try to get a well-rounded approach to whatever topics we cover. So it's important to talk about the environment a little bit. So far, I'm actually, I thought it would be worse. I don't, I mean, I don't know what it is right now, but just finding out that the same tree can produce tea every three days for 1500 years, it can't be so bad. It can't be as bad as I thought with like clear cutting and forest fires, right? Right, Kristen? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's like the land conversion stuff, but in general, yeah, like tea is actually not super bad for the environment. Um, And actually, the biggest environmental impact from tea by a long shot comes from adding milk to it. (laughs) So So add your oat milk. (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. Like, um, if you drink a cup of tea black, it can use as little as 21 grams of carbon dioxide. But if you put milk in it, that can increase it substantially. And milk actually often accounts for about two-thirds of the carbon footprint of a glass of tea that you're drinking. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's way more than the tea in terms of the water in terms of the carbon footprint. The same is actually true of the water footprint. Tea has a virtual water footprint of 30 liters. So if you're having a cup of tea, it's 30 liters of water. To put that into context, um, that's actually significantly less than coffee. So the virtual water footprint for coffee is 130 liters per cup compared to 30 for tea. So you're being on team tea means that you're more environmentally friendly. Yeah. (laughs) Suck it, coffee drinkers. I'm going to keep just I'm just going to keep saying that (laughs) you can at me. (laughs) I'll take it. I know I'm right. (laughs) But again, um, like adding milk really changes the water footprint of tea. So the virtual water footprint of tea is 255 liters per cup. I did a little bit of math and I kind of assumed that um, you might add like a quarter cup of milk to a glass of tea. That might be too much for some people. It might not be enough for other people. I don't know how much milk people add into tea, but that was just my rough approximation. But if you took that math, it would mean that the total water footprint of that mug of tea is now 94 liters instead of 30. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's a significant change. If you're, you want to make tea more environmentally friendly, the first step is to uh, take plant milk in it or to drink it black. Oh, I love drinking tea black. It's so, it's so much better, <laughs> especially if you're drinking Earl Grey. You get the full flavor. Mm, nom, 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 nom. I like my Earl Grey with a little bit of oat milk in it, but... You know, <laughs> you're, you're ruining it, Kristen. You're drinking tea wrong. <laughs> oh, I'm sure that's true. <laughs> this is like a huge challenge for me in um, researching the episode is there's like such a culture around tea. And I kept getting sucked into it every time I was um, researching. It was like, oh, what's George Orwell's thought on like how to make the perfect cup of tea? What is George Orwell's thought on making the perfect cup of tea? Um, I don't know, but apparently it has eight components and like two of them are uncontroversial and the rest are controversial. I don't know. Um. <laughs> <laughs> he probably drinks it with milk. I think he's uh, the kind that drinks it with milk, um, but adds the milk after the tea while stirring it. 
That is a thing I remember. <laughs> At me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but yeah, actually, um, most um, most people in the UK anyway do take uh, milk in their tea. So yeah, they do. I know they're all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Kyla's a purist, and she's better than everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, I can't see you from on top of my horse over here. <laughs> <laughs> clip clop, clip clop. <laughs> No, yeah, by just by drinking tea black, you're actually doing a lot for the environment. Um, the other way that you can sort of enhance your environmental impact from tea is to get loose leaf tea or to buy tea sort of in bulk. Um, just think about reducing that packaging. Well, and tea tea bags are often made out of plastic, right? So, yes, that is true. I didn't include that in my notes, but you're bang on. That is correct. The environmental footprint of tea, like you. With tea, you have similar environmental problems that you have in any other kind of agricultural situation. So tea production creates environmental problems through land conversion, right? When you want to create a tea plantation, uh, you have to clear it somehow, and that can lead to deforestation, erosion, river pollution. Um, it's the same kind of problems we come up with any time we're covering a crop in this podcast. Um, I don't want to go into it too much, but there have been like, um, depending on the context, there are different kinds of, you know, conservation and biodiversity threats that are faced by because of tea. In Northeast India, for example, uh, forest and grassland conversion has threatened tiger and rhinoceros populations. That's certainly not like an exhaustive list. There are many other uh, biodiversity and conservation threats from tea production, but just to give you sort of an idea. Uh, the other big environmental harm that comes with tea production is pesticide use. This is kind of similar to when we were talking about in the wine episode, right? Tea, depending on where it's grown, can be quite prone to pests, and so pesticides and herbicides do get used with some frequency. And uh, that can pose environmental risks for the areas around. There have also been a few stories that have come up about the presence of pesticides in tea bags that are found in grocery shops, which isn't really an ethical harm so much as it is just like a health risk for people. But that's gotten some attention. And uh, of course, there's also the risk that People working on tea plantations aren't given proper protective equipment, and so these pesticides can be actively harmful to their health. So yeah, environment tea, I think you can feel pretty good about that, right, Kyla? I don't know. I think so, yeah. I mean, of all of the things we've talked about on the show so far, it's the best. I mean, that's a low bar. That's a pretty low bar. But <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm surprised. I thought it would be worse. I, I'm pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I think it's just one of those things where like, yeah, it's a plant. It's not a plant that seems to take up all that much land. It's a perennial. So once you have them in a place, they can stay there. And yeah, animal agriculture is just always worse. Like, <laughs> I, I feel like we're kind of beating uh, listeners over the head with it, but it's just true. Like, Every time I go to research, that's like the conclusion that people come to about a variety of different products. Like, don't be worried about the carbon footprint of tea production. It's, you know... As long as you're not putting milk in it, then you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> Plants. Yeah. Human rights, though, is a slightly different story. 
And by slightly, I mean starkly different story. The opposite. (laughs) Yes. The biggest treatment, the biggest ethical concern with tea production is the treatment of workers on tea plantations. And uh, especially in South Asia, but in like anywhere that um, tea is grown, these rice violations have their roots to a certain extent in colonialism. Harvesting tea is really labor-intensive. You have to have people sort of picking these individual, like, flushes, right? And that creates, you, like, don't have mechanized tea picking, right? So it takes a lot of people doing a lot of picking. And that creates incentives for producers to push down labor costs to increase the profit, right? So that's, I think, the source of a lot of the harms. Colonialism plus the the labor-intensive nature of tea production, slash capitalism. Of course. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Of course. Uh, So (laughs) even though global prices for tea are at historically high levels, uh, the prices that are paid to producers are barely level with and can even be lower than where they were 30 years ago. Wow, fuck that. Yeah. So... I don't think tea picking has ever been a super lucrative gig unless you're on like a small holder tea farm where you're you're selling your tea for some ridiculous markup. It's always been kind of a low paid gig. But the fact that the wages are like staying the same or even going down, I think is a huge problem. And I think we need to to really emphasize that gender is in the mix here too, right? Um 75 to 85% of tea pickers are women. So these workers on tea plantations are primarily women. And as, as we'll get into a little later, they're raising families on these tea plantations in really inadequate situations. Let's talk a little bit about wages and working conditions. Tea harvesters make super low wages. It's often at their country's minimum wage um, and below the poverty line. In India, actually, because of like, the specific legacy of colonialism, tea pickers make less than minimum wage, which is great. Um. (laughs) Oh boy. Well, and I can tell you the minimum wage in India is not high. No. Yeah. In Sri Lanka, actually, which is one of the major tea exporters, 30% of workers on tea plantations live below the poverty line, which is higher than the overall proportion of the population. And it's despite the fact that these are people who are employed. So super low paying work. To give you some context, in India, tea plantation workers can be paid as little as a dollar to a dollar and a half a day, which is below the like extreme poverty level that the World Bank has set. Just to contrast, they're picking like 20 kilograms of tea a day. So they're producing actually a fair amount of value. Like this tea is being marked up way more than they're getting paid for it. Um, As in connection with that, like some tea plantations, there have been attempts to unionize and there have been sort of stories of union busting that's gone on on tea plantations. And in some cases that has resulted in violence or even death uh, for workers trying to create or join a union. There's also health risks when you're on tea plantations And uh, here, like, pesticides is a really good example, right? People spraying pesticides but not being given the right protective equipment so it makes them sick. 
which is a problem because a lot of the times on these cheap plantations, there's no access to health care um, or the access to health care is really inadequate. There's also been evidence of sort of like the medley of shitty labor conditions that you hear about in other contexts. So violence and abuse, debt bondage, the other, the underprovision the underprovision of legally mandated goods and services, and wage theft. So all of those are going on on tea plantations. Living conditions are, um, there's something we got to talk about because oftentimes on tea plantations, especially in India, like where you work is also your village. So these, they're like, the tea plantations are set up basically as villages where there's barrack style housing. And that is where tea pickers and their families live and it's their entire community. Uh, this can be really bad because the conditions in these villages often suck uh, because they're like, we're built in the 20s under colonialism and they haven't been improved. Or if they have been improved, the improvements often like aren't up to date. Uh, they means you can be living in really crowded accommodations where privacy can be really difficult to find. It means that Sometimes these buildings will only have electricity or running water for a couple of hours a day if they have it at all. In one example that I was encountering in my research, uh, the like sanitation hadn't been dealt with. So people were literally like pooping in the tea fields because they had nowhere else to do that, um, which, you know, that poses health risks, right? In a very real way. There's also very little privacy, which puts workers who I think we have to remember are primarily women at a much higher risk of sexual harassment and sexual violence. Uh, there was a survey that was done in Sri Lanka on a plantation there that found this lack of privacy has actually led women to commit suicide um, because they have no private space whatsoever. And oftentimes, like you live in these tea plantation villages your family has been tea pickers for multiple generations. Like <sighs> there's no way out, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's your whole world is this tea plantation, right? Mm. Um, alcohol abuse is really high among males on plantations and drunken violence against women is also super common. So can really be a shitty place for women to live and for men too. I'm sure it's not great, but <laughs> But the power dynamics are just going to make it worse for women in general in a situation like that. Yeah. So in India, um, essentially, like when the British colonized, they had relocated a bunch of workers to work on these plantations. And once India gained independence, they sought to deal with that entrenched colonial system, right, to try to fix it. Um, and they passed... A few laws, but the big one is the Plantation Labor Act of 1951. And the act actually, on paper, it sounds really great. It made plantation owners responsible for providing education, health care, sanitation, and employment for workers. That sounds pretty great. Um, and in exchange for that, people sort of, um, those plantation owners were allowed to pay under the minimum wage because the idea was they were providing all these other services. Unfortunately, the services are often not provided, um, and the situation where your home is also your workplace and your boss owns both can really make workers vulnerable to human rights violations. As well, because these houses are sort of long-standing family homes in a lot of cases, 
Um, oftentimes these families will have more than one family member working on the plantation. And the idea is like to reduce the risk that you'll get fired and that your house and your job at the same time will be taken from you, which is a pretty devastating situation to happen. Okay, so that was like two chunks of shittiness. <laughs> Let me add the third layer of child and forced labor. So unfortunately, child and forced labor both happen in tea picking. Because of the poverty wages on tea plantations, families often can't support themselves and their children, which can make children vulnerable to, first of all, it provides an incentive for children to be engaged in picking tea. But secondly, it makes children vulnerable to human traffickers. So it's not uncommon for girls especially to be trafficked into domestic slavery where they're often subject to physical and sexual abuse. Which is like a situation you wouldn't need to happen, like that wouldn't need to happen if these workers were being paid a living wage so that they could support their families, you know. <sighs> There's also a problem of forced labor. Um, and I was not able to find very much on Chinese tea production and human rights at all. But that little which I was able to find uh, suggests a link with penal labor. That um, in China, there's a system called laogai, uh, which essentially means reform through labor, and it's a form of like prison work. And uh, tea is one of the areas in which workers can be engaged. I mean, forced labor from within the prison system was something you were talking about, Kyla, in our forced labor episode. I wasn't able to find very much detail on what the tea situation looks like, but... It's probably not good. No, it, yeah, it indicates that it may be somewhat similar, unfortunately. <sighs> so, yeah. The other thing is that because these, like, low wages on tea plantations exist, they can actually force families to rely on money lenders if, for example, there's, like, a medical issue in the family or something like that. Um, and so people can enter into situations of debt bondage as a result of their family having such low wages on tea plantations, which makes family members of tea workers vulnerable to forced labor as well, which is kind of fucked. All right, so tea, not super bad on the environment. It's actually pretty decent, but human rights is a bit of a clusterfuck. Tea pickers are not treated well at all. What can you as a consumer do about it? There are a number of ethical certification schemes that exist out there, including Fairtrade, Rainforest Alliance, Ethical Trade Partnership, and Trustee. However, that certification does not always guarantee good labor standards. There was a study done in 2018 that basically found there was very little difference between certified and non-certified plantations in terms of wage levels and labor standards. That is basically because certifications like fair trade only require that wages don't fall below the legal minimum. So they only basically require that nobody's breaking the law in tea production. And uh, unfortunately, these minimum wages, as we've discussed, they're not, they're not a living wage at all. So certification is not a guarantee that workers' wages are actually living wages. There are two kinds of exceptions to that. One is that studies have shown that fair trade certification does improve wages on smallholder farms. 
So if you've got something that's fair trade certified but coming from a plantation, wages may not be higher. But if it's fair trade certification from a small farm, wages are higher. The other difference is that certification can help with a number of other things. So things like making sure there's overtime pay, written contracts, and actual investments in the facilities to keep conditions safe for people who are living on these plantations. The other thing is that um, basically how it works is that the fair trade premium goes back to the plantations to invest in things like education, safe facilities, housing, things like that. So if that fair trade investment is actually being used to the benefit of workers, then it can mean better conditions for people. But that's sort of a big if. Um, and for that reason, they found that like, if fair trade premiums are invested in independent NGOs, it often results in better outcomes than, um, than if they're not in the case of tea. So it's kind of a big asterisk. Like fair trade probably does help in tea production, but it certainly doesn't mean these people are having happy lives, you know, and getting paid a lot. Doesn't mean that at all. There is some sense that the industry's moving. Um, as there's been more attention to the working conditions on tea plantations, the big tea producers are getting more shit about it. And so as a result, um, they're moving a little bit to improve conditions and to sort of shore up their supply chains from an ethical perspective. Uh, in 1997, a number of the large chains created something called the Ethical Tea Partnership. It's not great, but it does have a certification standard and it does some stuff. And the new move seems to be trying to get these brands to publish supply chain transparency. So sort of the same thing that um, people in the garment industry are pushing for, for garment industry transparency. It, you know, publish your supplier lists. That's the same kind of thing that seems to be pushed for now in tea. The other tool that I found that was kind of helpful was the ethical consumer brand ratings. Um, so... Ethical Consumer is, it's a British magazine and they also research, um, they basically put out ratings for different brands and products. Uh, we've talked about them a few times on the show. And so I looked at their, their guide for tea and essentially they found the, the ranking says there's like slight differences in the ratings of the big three brands. So like PG Tips, Tetley and Lipton. And there's also some differences even amongst the same brand name, but all of them scored near the bottom of the ratings, unfortunately. Um, and that was because of these worker rights. Um, they're sort of all linked to this. this they're all tethered to the same problems. Um, so no one's really standing out on that. Unilever-owned teas tended to score the lowest. I'm not quite sure why, um, but none of them really did that well. The top performers were all fair trade organic certified or fair trade certified organic certified or both. So my suggestion would be like, if you're a British tea consumer, go to ethical consumers ratings. They're really helpful. If you're not like, I didn't recognize any of the brands on there other than the global ones. So maybe try doubling up your certification with fair trade or organic. If you're looking for fair trade tea, like actually see if there's a story about what the, the farm is and if it's a plantation or a smallholder farm, because that can make a difference. Otherwise, generally just like ask the tea company that you go to about it. 
because that shows that you care and they actually also might have a really good answer. Who knows? So yeah, that's, unfortunately, I don't have better advice than that. <laughs> Tea's kind of messy. Yeah, it sounds like the problem is that, <sighs> is that the system is so old and so big that to fix it, you would need to fix globalization. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and also that like, we're probably not paying enough for tea and the right people yeah. aren't being paid for the money that people do pay for tea. Yeah, I, I actually said that in my email to Murchies. I was like, look, I'm willing to pay more for tea. I love tea and it's not expensive and I don't mind paying more for it knowing that it wasn't picked by people experiencing forced labor or children who've been trafficked. Yes. Now that peace of mind would be worth an extra dollar or something like, yeah. Yeah, or more even, yeah. you know, I don't, I'm not a rich person, but I don't know, some things are worth it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck globalization, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And billionaires <laughs> while we're at it. <laughs> tax the rich. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Wealth tax now. Raise the capital tax rates. <laughs> well, if we said anything wrong or if you're Team Coffee and you want to yell at me, you can add us on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> We're a pullback podcast. <laughs> uh, I haven't done a shout out for a while. We've been doing, we've been, oh, so we've been talking about tea. So I want to shout out one of my British friends. I don't know if, I think I've shouted out Dave before, but he's been such a supportive friend and I haven't talked to him in a while. So hello, if you're listening to this episode, <laughs> I think that's a little bit more of a positive thing to end on. I'm going to keep drinking lots of tea. I'm going to keep looking for organic, small holder. I'm getting pretty good at shopping, but... Yeah, the whole system is broken. Yeah, it's really fucked. Yell at your MP. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what our, even our MPs would be able to do for this one, though. No, um, I mean, yeah, I guess I've really got nothing on this one. <laughs> Yell at your local tea company. Turns out my challenge was very accurate for this one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Make chai, but not with pistachio milk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, not not pistachio milk. Cool. Well, thanks for listening, guys. This was half more uplifting than usual and half the same as usual. So I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> Catch you on the next one. Don't worry, that won't be the blooper. <laughs> I mean, it could be. Please say something. <laughs> Say something funny during this episode that I need to cut so that we don't have to talk about my mental health problems in the back end. Oh my god. Um, so I'm going to try to find a way to shoehorn spilling the tea into this episode because puns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you missed your pun in the last one. I know. I actually wrote it in my notes, spilling the tea about...